She said, well, how much do you want to raise? So I remember I got half a million pounds. And I remember Susanna kicked me out of the table like, are you insane? I just thought we'd never hear from her again. Two weeks later, I got an email and it was from this woman. And she said, I don't think half a million is right. We think we're going to give you 675,000. I wrote back and I said, what do you want in return? She said, we want the Cape and Wireless logo. And when you start doing e-com, you use our e-com platform. No equity. No equity. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and you're listening to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. This is the place where you can find untold stories and powerful insights from the UK startup scene. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Trini Woodall, who you may know as one half of Trini and Susanna from TV, but she's also the founder of soaring makeup startup Trini London, which has booked £42 million in revenue just in the year to date, March 2021. She's had a really surprising entrepreneurial journey that not many people know about, and we're going to dive deep on it today. We'll start, as we love to do, at the beginning, a boarding school to be specific. Trini moved around a lot as a child and didn't even enjoy her life until she was about 14. She eventually found herself held back a year in school, but there was always one solace, fashion and beauty. That was my one thing that I did love, because... I lived abroad when I was at the school in England. And so I had access to nice stationery. I know this sounds really random, but in Germany, there was lovely stationery. And in England, we had Basled and Bond, navy, you know, blue stationery. So I could bring these things. I had another friend who lived in Italy and there was Benetton. And she brought these things. And my mum took me to M&S to buy things, not my school uniform, but just to buy my clothes. And... This girl came with twin sets from Benetton. And I. it was like, oh, my God, there is another life other than the M&S shopping aisles for clothing. And I just then would spend my weekends making over friends. So I'd take different parts of their wardrobe and put them together. And, and it started then that that joy I would get from somebody feeling joyous about having something just change a bit. And so consistently probably from the age of about seven, I have done that in even if it wasn't at the time, my passion and my in and, and my career. So really interesting. How would you say the old like childhood then? Because you took, you know, obviously quite intense memories, ultimately, and not necessarily ones that you want to remember often. But how do you say that your childhood impacted how you see the world? I think that to begin with, maybe it made me just my, my parents never had that sense of try and go to university. There wasn't that, what do you want to be? What's your career? There wasn't that conversation. My dad had been very successful when he was younger. He'd been like one of the youngest bankers in London and ran a, a, a merchant bank. And then in sort of later times, he kind of didn't have so much success. And that really affected him. And I saw that whole, I didn't see the early bit because I was not born and then very young, but I saw that later transition. And I saw that sort of, he was always a real bon vivant, my father, but there was that kind of lost dream, a little tiny bit of that lost dream or having achieved something very early. And then it wasn't necessarily so strong. And that really affected me. My mother never worked and always would start things and never finish them and was an unbelievably kind woman to many people, and they always remember that way. But she never gave me my motivation. And my father had this energy that I gravitated towards, and I love that energy. So from my childhood, I think I, I thought, there was a time in my childhood where I thought, I really want to conquer the world, 
And it would be having those conversations around the dinner table and hearing him and my brother-in-law and my brother talk about business and feeling, I, I want to, you know, I want some of that. And I think that's, I did get that from my childhood. And if I look back today, you know, like the day I got my confirmed fundraise, you know, when I knew I got the money in, was the anniversary of my father's death. And there was a very, I have a very sweet investor called Karen Hanton, who has pets pajamas. And I didn't know her so well, but she's such a lovely, generous in nature investor. And she called me because she, we closed around and she said, congratulations. And I just, it popped out my mouth. To, I didn't really know this woman. And I said, you know, it's so ironic because it's on the anniversary of my father's death. And I, I would have loved to have told him that I had actually managed to do this, you know, aged 50. But he had died the year before, so I hadn't. But I kind of think I wanted him to know that where he felt, not this corniness down, but where he felt he maybe, you know, I was doing it. I was charging forward and I did it. I got the money in. It wasn't a pipe dream, you know. And in our family, we have lots of people who start a lot of things and don't always finish them. And I just, it gave me that determination. It's interesting because I'm just listening. It sounds like he had quite a... Um quite a serious impact on your life or certainly your choices because you started your career in trading commodities, right? So it's not not that far away from, I guess, the experience or the types of careers you might expect a banker's daughter to go into, in theory, if influenced. Trading commodities at that time was like the arse end of the smartness of the city, okay? It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't trading places, but it was like I was doing Anglo-American funds and I was trying to sell them and I wasn't on the trading floor trading physicals or futures. I was up there trying to sell those funds and I, it was something I felt I should do and I probably felt I should do it because I thought maybe, you know, I, I hadn't managed to go to university. I kind of fell into it and for a few years I fell into jobs. You know, I did have that real pattern and I would go, you know, I've said this before, but I'd go to work on the tube with the Financial Times like that. And inside would be, you know, the Daily Mail or the Standard or, you know, I just like it's the what I feel I should look like and what was happening inside. It was that newspaper thing was the total epitome of that feeling. And after two years of that, I just thought, what am I doing? And, and it was it was 87. There was the crash. You know, there was in my personal life. I was just thinking I'm this is just not for me. Were there any disasters for you whilst you were doing it? Well, Black Monday was a disaster for everyone at that time. So I'd say not that your was your fault, though. Not, not my fault, though. No, I'd not, say not that your was... fault. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I, no, was there personal disasters for me? No, there weren't. But I think how I felt that time as a person made me think I don't want to be in this business. I don't want to be doing this. I want to love myself enough to do something I want to do not any other reasons. I want to be driven by what is my passion. So then age sort of 26, 27, I thought, well, what is my passion? You know, what do I love? And I loved, you know, I'd have girlfriends to my room, I'd change their clothes out, I'd take them in my bathroom, I'd put makeup on them. And this was all this sideline. And I just loved it. It was when I felt happiest. It was when I felt I was changing how they saw themselves. And then I just thought, okay, I want to do something to do with that. So I thought of the idea for a newspaper, uh, a column, which would just show you all the things that you could get now and what was really great and what was terrible and a bit about body shape and all the things that then developed into that earlier career of mine. And I met my partner, who was my partner, 15 years, Susanna, and we we pitched it to 
the Express, they didn't want it. And then the measuring editor of the Daily Telegraph um, became the weekend editor of the Daily Telegraph. And he said, I got page three, I could do something with it. Do you want to do something with fashion and motors? And we went, no, not fashion and motors, but we have an idea. So Susanna and I started the idea. It was a very lucky break. And I did that for eight years. And then from that, television came. And then I started writing books. And that whole part of my career of really, when I look back now down at what that brought to being the CEO of Trini London, it helped me to understand women very well, understand what makes them motivated, what makes them not feel good about themselves, understand that, you know, whatever country you live in, whatever religion you are, whatever color of skin you have, there are these emotions that women can go through and just to understand quickly how a woman is feeling. And TV makes you have to get to that point very quickly. And before you before you did that though, didn't you start a, an internet business in, uh, in in even the last millennium? It was 1998, and I was looking at the internet and thinking, "This is so interesting." And I loved. I just I just thought there's something here, and I want to see what we can do. And I remember that I went on a three-day drinking water and I can't remember what was in this bottle, but it was something that was just like a diet thing. And I, I just, I think I wanted to clean out my system. I was having so much sugar and I just wanted to do that. So I had this idea for Ready Too then, and I wrote it all down and I said, Susanna, I really think that we should look at the internet. And I just got a, I'd got a DVD which had the horse whisperer on it. And I saw that it was, there was something to do with the site and it was channeled by Cable and Wireless. And so I then thought, okay, well, they're doing something to do with online. It would be so good if we could do a site where women could just find everything they need to find and then the means to redeem revenue on this, I hadn't yet decided, but I thought it was this one place that was such a collective place to gather information and to personalize information for women. I'd always, from that day, wanted to think, how can you personalize things? And that is at the heart of us now. So. We went to see this woman called Jill, Jill Street or Jill something at Cable and Wireless. Because I said, Suzanne, let's just go and see this woman and see what. And she said, well, we have an e-commerce platform and we're doing the, you know, the e-com platform for stuff. So if you want to start, you know, we're looking at things to invest in. We want to get more women online doing stuff. This is really early days. Right? We want to get more women online doing stuff. So um, it would be great if you could tell me your idea. So I said, look, we want to have this destination. It's going to have clothing, makeup, everything. It's going to give you all the information you need. You put in your personal information. We're going to gather a tremendous amount of personal information on women, blah, blah, blah. So she said, well, how much do you want to raise? First time I'd ever been asked that in my life. So I remember I half a million pounds. And I remember Susanna kicked me out of the table like, are you insane? And we left. And um, I just thought we'll never hear from her again. Two weeks later, I got an email. And it was from this woman. And she said, I don't think half a million is right. We think we're going to give you 675,000. I wrote back and I said, what do you want in return? She said, we want the cable and wireless logo. And when you start doing e-com, you use our e-com platform. So I said, no equity, no equity. What? That is mad. So, but then madder is yet to come. Can't believe you were not going to share the story. I'm so glad I've done my research to ask you. You've got to go straight into TV in Trini London so far. This is already one of the weirdest stories I've heard. 
This was a really interesting time for online. There was like Red Herring was the magazine. There were these, you know, I was kind of talking at these events. It was it was so exciting and it was very, very early days of commercializing things. So I started to get together the team. My brother came in as CFO. Susanna was having a baby occasionally during this process. So I was probably, I was doing a lot of calls at 7.30 in the morning saying, why aren't you here yet? And she said, because I'm breastfeeding. So... We then, I hired a really fabulous woman, but I felt I didn't have the experience on certain things. So I hired a managing director who had been in banking because I felt I needed that. And we went to raise money and we got money from J.H. Whitney and Atlas Ventures, which Atlas Ventures was a very early stage VC. And we raised seven million pounds in a month and a half because people were so keen then to invest in these things. It was It was like... Compared to term sheets now, it was it was unbelievable. I don't even remember the share structure, actually, because it was that long ago. So we we started hiring people, and I hired quite quickly, and we had a lot of... We were doing everything in hard coding. It was all pearl-coded. We were developing this personalization platform. You could put in your body shape, and, and we photographed 6,000 items on the high street, and then you'd say, I want a red dress for 50 quid, and here's your body shape, and we would show you. But we were doing everything back-end manually. And there was no path to profitability in the foreseeable future. And I had thought, if I can get all this information on women, I could ask them about their skincare routine, ask them what they're already using, which you see now online, to gauge where they're at. And if I have enough information from enough people, we can then work with people like Procter & Gamble and say, we can give you info that women have given to us, not because they're getting a cheap deal or a free ride, but because we're helping them. And so it would be very authentic information. So... It was the end of the dot-com bubble, and I just then went away. I remember I went on a retreat in Arizona for a week, and I came back feeling then clear-headed and thinking, like, I'm ready for what life's going to throw at me next. And the BBC rang, and we'd done a pilot like a year before, and they said, we really love it. Can we do it? And then we started our TV career. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. 
You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. It's amazing because there's two two things to pick up on here. One is the, in some respects, this experience is inconsequential to you, not literally, but in the grand like in the grand scheme of things, it was something that you know you were going to uh, pass over. And so it's interesting to just sort of unpack how much you learned in that experience, yet um, kind of flash in a pan, really, in terms of like the big stories in your life. So I think it's really interesting to think about how your first venture, how you frame that psychologically to yourself in that it doesn't count. To me, it's, it does totally count because I, I, you know, when I was starting Trini London, I literally picked apart everything I felt I'd done there that wasn't right. And I did the opposite. So I didn't hire any C-suite until two years in, apart from my COO. I hired mainly interns. I hired people who had passion with something, a twinkle in their bloody eye, and I thought they're going to give me their all and I can teach them the rest. They were really close by my side. We were around a kitchen table for the first year of Trini London in each other's laps in a tiny house which got to 30 people in that house. And they've now got, they've really grown in the business. And that team is amazing. And they now are in positions where I, lo- I love the trajectory of somebody who came in on 18 grand and is now at sort of, you know, some amazing salary, but has eight people underneath them and has earned that in three years. That's the biggest thing I learned. The other thing is, what can you bootstrap before you go out for the big raise? So I got that big 675 very quickly. So when I had the idea for Trini London, I knew I needed to raise money because it was the end of my career and everything else. And I was living in a house too big for me. I didn't have the funds. You know, I was cutting down every single bill. And two people who believed in me and believed in my work ethic were looking at SEIS schemes. So one of them said, I was going to do a beer company. Trini, I'll do yours. I've gone off. She runs Beauty at Mintel, Beauty Research. And I told her the main principles of this portable, personalized, premium product brand easy to use and she looked at her research said you've got three of the five trends for the next five years and I I think it's a goer and the other person was a very nice man who was in um finance and he was just my daughter's godfather and and believed in in my passion for this business so that got me going then I had two interns then I was doing R&D on the actual stack and trying to get what I saw as the vision of it into reality, which was 10 prototypes of much pain and crying before we got there. And then formula development, which I was doing in my bathroom and then sending off to people in Italy to to do. And then I ran out of that 150. And that was very tough too, because I knew I had to sell the house I was in. I'd run out of that money. And I just thought, what have I got that I can sell? You know, I never bought a nice picture or had a, you know, a nice bit of jewelry. All my jewelry my grandmother left me, I'd had stolen about seven years ago. So I didn't have, you know, all I had was clothes. And I had accumulated a vast amount of clothes over the years because of doing all the TV shows. And I have kind of 
a way that I feel you should never borrow clothes. You have to know your style, so you have to buy it. And I never, ever like to lend. I never like to borrow. So I decided I'll do the sale. A friend of mine helped me price everything. I went on to Emily's list. I thought, I don't care who comes in my house. I just need to sell it. I need to raise 50 grand if I can. And I, in fact, over a week raised 60 grand. Over two weeks, actually, raised 60 grand. And that kept me going. You know, that money was like my lifesaver because I was so at that tipping point of being ready to present, ready to go and see investors. But there were a few more things I had to do. And then obviously um, where you're most known is, um, and, and I think it's a super interesting, right? Because I would imagine where you hope to be most known is as a brilliant entrepreneur. And that's the period of your life where you're in now is, is leaving behind a legacy through building. But obviously on a personal brand level, from a, a TV career, from a book writing career, you know, being a, an actual celebrity, how did you handle fame? I never really see myself as a celebrity or famous. I know people know me and I know I will go down the street and people will stop me. But it's something that I have never, ever thought through in any way. Because, like, when we did TV, and TV is the way you're most instantly recognised, all right, and, and you become like a household name. And there were a few years where we were a real household name. But we were working really hard. You know, I never socialised with anyone who was famous. You know, I had my friends from school. I had, you know, given birth to my daughter. But even before I gave birth to my daughter, we were getting known. But in that time... So the only times that really it would affect me is because we did work very hard, Susanna and I. You know, we, we were really at it all the time. So when you are doing that, you don't you're not out at parties getting photographed. I mean, you know, we would go to things and be photographed. I never got into it, really. <laughs> I remember the only times it would affect me is like I used to take Lila to school and there'd be photographers in the street. And there were photographers in the street because also there was Claudia Schiffer and Elle McPherson in the same bloody strip, you know, so they could have a field day. And really they were after them. They didn't give a damn about me. But I didn't like it if Lila was photographed, you know. And I didn't ever, you know, if I gave interviews, I, I would talk about my stuff, but I'd never talk about my relationship with my husband or, or my daughter or anything, you know. I'd talk about having IVF because I feel it's very helpful to other women. But there was actually a very strict line Susanna and I had about... Like, I'd never consider, would I do a spread in Hello magazine? No way, you know. I, I wouldn't open up my life then. I mean, now we are here and I broadcast every day from my room, but it's a different thing, which I'll go into. So so then when we were selling these books, and I remember my book agent called up and said, you sold 40, 47,000 books this week. And I went, is that really good? And they went, do you understand what that, how good that is? But I just, it was happening so fast and we moved from BBC Two to BBC One because the viewing figures were very good. So these were all like, is that good? Because it was, we weren't going into telly from Teletubbies chart. You know what I mean? It's like we went in as women in our 30s. We already had a life. We already had our friends. We already had our home. You know, it wasn't, that's very different, very different from somebody creating their whole life out of a part of that. So it didn't affect me hugely. It affected me if I was, you know, I went off a 24-hour flight from Australia going to film in Australia and there was paparazzi at the airport and I felt I looked terrible and I thought, oh, well, you know, wear a hat next time. 
And then and then it went because then as soon as you stopped doing TV, you know, people might still recognize you, but they'll go, did you used to be that person, Trini? We'll be back to talking about why Trini's not on TV anymore and the biggest lessons from her past failures. Back in a mo. Of the six UK unicorns who have exited, can you guess what they all have in common? They've all been advised by our latest partner, Deloitte, and there's good reason for that. I know the joy and pain that comes with scaling a company fast. You need to focus on growth, your team and customers, but often your attention is taken away by must-dos in areas like finance and compliance. I'm talking about headaches, like making sure you're charging VAT correctly on a new product, or your intellectual property is watertight, or having the right corporate structure for international expansion. These are complicated areas that you're really not trying to innovate in. So you need a partner like Deloitte who knows them inside out so you don't screw them up and you get more time and increase your chances of success. So whether you're an early stage startup or an international scale up, check out Deloitte's high growth team to help find the right answers faster. Search Deloitte Private to find out more. So why did you stop doing TV then? Because it dried up, because we were no longer flavor of the month, because there were other people who came into that space who were more, you know, different. We'd done seven years in the UK. So we did a tiny show for Belgium because we had a magic knicker business um, at this time as well. And we were selling sort of spanks. And they said, can you come and do a show in Belgium to support the knickers? Very, very provincial, small time things. But we were thinking we have, you know, BBC, we don't want to do ITV anymore because they want to get very commercial and talk about bodies and and just like a little bit too vulgar for what we wanted to do. We'd like, you know, there had been that move between BBC and ITV and you always find that there's a different attitude and approach and a different way that they consider what programmes you should be doing. And we didn't kind of like what they were suggesting. So we then took this little show we'd done in Brussels and it went to MIPCOM. I remember my agent called me up and said, Trini, you know that we've got about 16 countries who want to do this show. And I was thinking they just want to get the rights. And they went, no, they want you to come to these countries and make this show. So we went from earning a huge amount of money, um, a lot of book deals, TV deals, licensing deals, to hardly anything, to this offer to go around the world and make these shows, which we then did because Susanna and I had homes to look after. We had kids to educate. We really needed to earn the money. And that was actually the hardest I've worked for the least amount of money, but the most satisfying because instead of the edit that they'd done in the UK on trying to polarize Susanna's my character to give that yin and yang, they let us be who we were. They were softer shows, they were called the Makeover Missions and we did them in Australia and in India and in Germany and in um, all of Scandinavia and Israel. And we just went around and I met so many, I met like 5,000 women. I met so many women and the idea for Trinity London came from that part of my life when I was going around and in every country, like in Poland, we had Ignot do the makeup for the, the for the contributors. In in Israel, it was Mac. And I saw all these makeup artists and they would all put the same makeup on these women, whether they were 18 or 80. And I was like, this is so wrong. And I kept having to go and say, change this, do this, change that. What have you done with her eyebrows? And it made me think, and then all these women were, you know, having heart to hearts with us about how they felt about themselves, their bodies, their frustrations at the beauty counter, being able to identify what they wanted in their life, who they wanted to be. And from that, I got the idea of Trini London. So interesting. 
So like a proper spark just from speaking to like thousands of women, essentially, I guess, you know, over a period of time that really builds up. Before we go into Trini London, I just want to touch on something. So, you know, you mentioned um, when you were starting it, obviously, you raised 150k SEIS, you, but then, you know, you ran out of that money. So you needed to, uh, to raise more. So obviously selling clothes, but also, you know, that all probably sounds very alien to a random listener who's like, but if you're a super well paid celebrity on TV, where the hell does all the money go? So where does where did all the money go? Like, why was that a whole personal issue? That's quite difficult for me to say, because it would affect other people. But I, I did help people very close to me out with a lot of things. And that didn't work out. And I did that quite a lot with um, a particular situation. A lot of it went there. A lot of it went on being extravagant. You know, all those clothes, you know, giving myself a good budget, wanted to travel, just went, didn't have to check what the ticket price should be, that kind of stuff. Had a house, but had a big mortgage on it. So I wasn't in, I wasn't being prudent. I wasn't saying, let me just take, you know, this is what I'm earning. This is fantastic. This is more than I ever dreamt I would earn. And let me invest it properly. No, none of that. And I think that at the time in my personal situation, the idea was perhaps that I would look after the present day and my partner would look after the future. There was a little bit of that, you know. Yeah, and so it's really interesting. And thank you for sharing. And do experiences like that have an impact on how you think today? Like, are you like considerably more prudent now based on that experience or, you know, because it's difficult right now, your business is scaling. So I'm like so interested in your perspective because you've got experience of a failed business, but also having and then having not. So I want to know what goes through your mind in the current day when you're having great success at Trini. Okay, so just to be really, this is being very clear because I think there's no point ever not being clear. I live with somebody who has a lovely home. I sold my home, so I have a lovely home. I pay for every single thing in my life apart from the lady who helps in the house, and food. So everything else I pay for. When I started in London, was on a very small salary. So things were really tight. When I sold my house, I had a little bit of money left that I put into paying Lila's school fees. So I put that aside. But I just didn't have much left. I got a big bill from the tax man from a few years before. So that took away even more. And I was, you know, in this position where things were really tight. And there I was in that very early stage of a business where you've got the funding, but you yourself, you know, so I kind of then for nine months didn't buy anything for myself. Then I did start to, but it would be Zara, which it sort of predominantly still is. You know, I'm always trying out skincare, which I buy myself, but now usually the company will buy and will look, you know, I'll do things like that. I started to pay myself a better salary last year, but I still don't own my own home. I still, you know, I have, you know, an article in Forbes last week saying hyper growth of European beauty company valuation of $250 million. Okay. And I have quite a lot of shares in this business. So, so on paper, I'm doing really well. And what I think is a hard thing for me which now I've got to, Dan, 
is that for the first two years of Trinity London, because the way we wanted to strategically build it, we didn't have that kind of hyper growth in that first year. And so there were a lot of the investors like, mm, really? And I'd always felt I want to, I need that returning customer to be so powerful because they will amplify my whole business. And I don't believe I'm going to be doing a Glossier or a Casper. I want to do a different approach. And, you know, Blitzkrieg come out and all this kind of hyper growth, hyper growth. And now we are in that very aggressive growth and whatever we spend, we get back immediately. So we're kind of like got quite a lot of cash in the bank. We're thinking, okay, what should we do with it? It will actually be long-term strategic things. We don't need to do a raise. We went into profitability last year. You know, we'll do 44 million by March on this year. So we're in a very strong position. So this is something that that is a candid conversation, but it's, you know, there are a lot of founders who, who are, will be in my position. They might be 30. I'm 57. I have a daughter. I don't own a home. And it's like, do I take money off the table now to just get some basic things that as a woman in my 50s, I kind of should have by now? Or do I say no, because I have a roof over my head and I'm very happy in my relationship and my daughter's fine. I paid for her school fees and I don't need I don't need that much. You know, I have still, you know, I'm in a bloody wardrobe talking to you, okay? I have still that. And, you know, I don't need to go on big, extravagant holiday. I, I've done so much in my life, Dan, that I don't need that wow fizz. I want to build an amazing business. So that's a position I'm at, you know, just in terms of that cash flow and in terms of as a founder that, you know, I can speak to a few founders. I, I, I It would be very helpful for me to speak to more founders and say, okay, in this situation, what have you done and what have you done? And just think about, because if the business does really, really well, and there is a chance that we're at a position where, you know, I used to walk like this, there is my feet and, and the ground is by my navel. And that's how I walked. But I walk now and the ground is two inches below me. And understanding the ground is only two inches below me calms you down, doesn't make you feel that just thinks, you know, believe you have a good business. So when you've had a business which has failed before, you need that extra reinforcement to think this is a really good solid business. And when you've had a career that's changed course and changed direction, that's another reason why you nearly, like what are the things I need to take to know this business isn't going anywhere? You know, I, I even, because I'm very superstitious person, so I want to touch wood now, you know. But we have a, an amazing team we're 120 people. We have great revenue. Um, we've got incredibly exciting product development. We've got phenomenal tech that we're developing in personalization. And I want to be leading in personalization in beauty around the world in how we look at personalization. Because I think personalization, the way some people have done it, is so bloody impersonal. And personalization is what should bring trust to a brand and a community and a conversion. And I don't see it being done right yet. I mean, I think we do our little match to me and that's that's our very beginning stepping stone. But I have 40 people who work in tech and we're looking at that as one of the biggest things for our growth. Don't go anywhere because next we'll be talking all about vision and how Trini has used it to put her startup in a really strong position. 
I know some of you have experienced the pain of setting up and managing your business's finances. You want to be moving the needle for your company, but instead you're on the phone to your bank trying to do stuff like send a large payment which has been blocked. This is why we're so happy to be working with Revolut for business. Their business account lets you manage your company's finances and have full visibility on all outgoings. With Revolut Business, you can send and receive money in over 150 currencies at the interbank rate and even set up multi-currency accounts. But what I like the most is that you can integrate with all your apps or plugins like accounting and expenses and manage your finances easily from one place so you can focus on your actual business goals. We've partnered with Revolut Business to bring you guys an exclusive two-month paid plan for free which you can't find anywhere else. Go to revolut.com slash secretleaders to claim your free two-month trial. That's revolut.com slash secretleaders. If you enjoy hearing me interview some of the world's top founders, just like Trini, did you know that I also host another podcast for my own company, Heights, called Brain Care, which every week unpacks two snappy 15-minute episodes on an array of topics from science, health, and wellness experts that are all designed to help you learn practical and actionable advice you can take into your day-to-day. Topics like dealing with imposter syndrome, burnout, optimizing sleep, managing anxiety, how to forgive yourself, loneliness, connection, compassion, and so much more. Plus brilliant guests like Stephen Fry, Jay Shetty, Dame Kelly Holmes, and many more. Just search Brain Care on any podcast player. And if you're on Clubhouse, come join Brain Care Club for daily meditations, breathwork, and conversations designed to help you take better care of your brain so you can succeed in your career for longer and avoid the same mistakes that I made. That's Brain Care on any podcast player. Now back to Trini. The first vision to me was they all came in different order. When I was seeing all these people being made over, I just thought it's women look so much better in cream-based products because they don't look so heavy. You know, it doesn't, and there's nothing wrong with heavy makeup, but it looks more real, all right? So I knew that. I knew that I had put together these little pots that I bought in Muji and I'd name them with a dino thing and that whenever I was in a bathroom, people would say, what is that? And I'll say, that's my makeup, you know, my makeup bag. And they were like mesmerized. They had this huge bag and they were like, you've got this tiny thing and you're making up your whole face. And, and I thought, I know that's really appealing. So you have to start with the product because they got to keep coming back to buy it. So that was my passion not the way somebody buys something, because will the way somebody buys something make them come back? Not if the product isn't good. The product's got to be great. When you're doing D2C and it's a physical product, it's got to be good. So that was the first part of it. And I originally went round with my partner and every weekend I'd go to Selfridges and all these different department stores. I'd think, where can I imagine Trinity London would sit? And for months whilst I was developing, you know, the formulas and everything, I was still thinking, is it retail? And then one day I'm walking through Selfridges and I'm just thinking, so often women are telling me, I go to the makeup counter, I can't choose between 300 lipsticks. I get a foundation put on, I walk outside and it's the wrong color. And I, I think this was a day when I was got somebody to make me up because I always was checking out staff as well. So I got them to make me up and I walked outside and I just thought, there has to be a better experience than this because this is not one that is is great for every woman. So then I thought, actually, I don't want to be in a store. I want to be online. And then I thought, okay, but if I want to be online, but I want to get women who traditionally go in store, how am I going to get them online? 
and I, they've got a trust. So how am I going to create that trust? I'm going to offer them something which is not just like, you've got green eyes or this is your skin tone, but this is the combination of skin, hair and eye. You tell us what it is and we'll tell you the, the refined palette of makeup that suits you. And then we'll give you a lot of tutorials as to how to do that makeup. And we'll show you on the website only real women from 18 to 80 who you can identify with to make you feel reassured that it's not just a 16-year-old model continuously selling me makeup. So then I knew I had it. Then I knew that was it. It was going to be that personalization. It was going to be the portability of the stack. And it was going to be the premiumness of product that it always would be best in class. Because finding your price point is really key. And I knew that, you know, makeup is a very interesting area in price point because there's huge margins in some brands and, and other brands not so much. And in D2C, I didn't do margins as if they were for retail. I just did D2C margins. But I also felt, what is the value of that? How good is that? How long does it last? How dense is the pigment? And then I made my prices based on that. And I think through building Trini London, and advice I always give to other entrepreneurs, younger entrepreneurs, is stay in your own lane. Because if you look too much at the competition you dilute the uniqueness of your offering. And you initially, at the beginning, you do have that uniqueness in your offering. You have that uniqueness in what you feel your proposition is. But if you keep saying, well, they do it this way and they do it this way and they do it, so maybe I should do a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of this, then in the end, it will be vanilla. And so I did, like, put my back against the shop floor and think, it's got to be online, so how are we going to do it? And then starting that journey. So that was not the thing I started with, Dan. It was actually the product and the quality of the product. And then everything followed. Yeah, so really, it's about it's about brand positioning, isn't it? Above anything else, about having super clarity. And then, like you know, obviously, like you say, the more successful you are, the more building blocks you can bring in, like personalization, like a clearer vision, like a tech team. You know, forty to sixty people building a personalization engine. None of that really matters if you don't have the initial fans and the products and the retention. Most importantly, right? Especially with D two C. Yeah. And I think having that, we have a phenomenal lifetime value for our customer and our long-term cohorts, are, uh, it's a sexy part of our spreadsheet because they are just unbelievably solid. And this is where, when we were talking earlier about what matrix people on, put on the value and when you're going for another fundraise and, and Mark, who's my CEO, Mark and I very, we agree wholeheartedly on this nurtured customer who will spread the word. And we have this kind of tribe called the Trini tribe on Facebook. And these are women who were not a part of the brand. Before I start, before the brand launched, when I knew what we were starting, I'd started to build a, a little following. And when I did the business plan, I did it based on, because it's like, mm, finger in the air. So Mark and I thought, okay, let's do a percentage conversion of social media following. So we said between two and 3% of the people who follow me on social media will buy. So at the time I had maybe... 80,000 followers. And I knew by the time I wanted to launch, I wanted like 150. And we got we got to that. But from day one, when I was doing social media, I thought, all I know how to do is talk, not do pretty pictures. So from day one, it was that conversation. And it generated interest to women. And, and I remember the first time I did Facebook, this woman said this comment, we, are you Trini from what used to be Trini? And I went, yeah, hi. And they were, it was just 
I found my other voice too, because with Susanna, she was always so funny and cozy and all these things. And so I was kind of, you know, edited to be one thing. So I kind of found, oh my God, you know, people find me funny. I was surprised people found me funny. And it's because I have no, you know, I don't care. I don't care if I look dreadful. I don't care if I, you know, have a dog's nappy on my eyelash during COVID trying to dye my eyelashes. I don't care. And there's a great freedom in not caring. So, I mean, I care definitely about some things, but, you know, that, I don't care about that. So that became engaging. And then this tribe, this community started even before I launched on Facebook. And they did a little sort of fan page, Kelly in Northwest England. And they started then a few others to do little Facebook fan pages. And then we launched and then they started using the product and saying what they thought. And they were our biggest champions and our biggest critics, you know. But they were excited we were launching. And, and I kept saying, I'm launching something. And a lot of them thought I was launching skincare because I talked as much about skincare as makeup. And that made us day one do the 30 grand. And then we went down to sort of four and maybe four and a half the next day and maybe five and that kind of slow growth. And you look on Shopify and you think, oh, another ping, you know, that whole early, early days. But that tribe has grown and grown. And, you know, we have this social media following but that tribe is at the core of what I always think about when I think of our customer and when I think of our follower. And it's about 75,000 women in 33 tribes across 16 countries. And when so many people talk about the word community, I'm like, mm, let's really let's really analyze what truly is the best community you can have if you're a business. And to me, the best community you can have is one that starts autonomously from you because they have their own voice. You know, after a while, we sort of said, look, you all pinched a bit of the logo and put that on. You, One of you put my face on the others, put something else. Should we help you a bit here? Why don't we stop the people who very sweetly were volunteering to be admins to the pages? We said, we'll call you ambassadresses. You know, if we do a new, new launch, we'll send you as an ambassadress the product we're launching. And there was this sort of yin and yang. And, and they know that, you know, on my feed, I will chat about 101 things and give them a ton of free advice on many different things. And I'll also talk about Trini London. And they're like, we get that. And they got that. So they, you know, if I'm on if I'm on lives, they're the ones who, if somebody's asking about a product and I haven't seen it on the live, they'll say, oh, she means this. And they're incredible, these women. And so now, you know, I do shout outs on my on my own social media saying, would you like to join a tribe of women? And especially during COVID where... People have felt very isolated. And I always talk about this is a community of women who will accept you for the woman you want to be today. And that is a huge deal for so many women because we can be put in a box. You know, it's like what my husband, partner, daughter, sister, mother knows me as, and I can't get away from being that person because that's reassuring for them. But there are days I wake up and I think, I want to be somebody, somebody that's, something a bit different and I think what is appealing about these communities is the women are amazing they're so supportive to one another they're tribal communities that are you know the Sydney tribe is also in the New York community there's this kind of thing and 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 they support one another and nobody is mean you know they're like somebody puts on makeup wonkily and says what do you think and they go you look amazing how brilliant we know that you were diagnosed with chemotherapy two weeks ago and look at what you're doing you know it's like this amazing community and so when i'm asked you know about 
Trini London and I and, and people like say what is it you know what is it and I and I always feel what I want it to be Dan is more than just a beauty brand you know I want it to be something that's left a woman feeling better about herself because if somebody feels better so if every bit of content we make we think about we're going to make them feel better about themselves if every personalization thing we we look at on on tech of, of the journeys we take how do we make them feel better about themselves that then contributes to let's make this a very personalized journey let's give them each very different personalized returns that will make them feel better about themselves you know if we're looking at our social media feel, feed what women do we put up there they can identify with so they feel better about themselves because that message to me makes women want to spread the word of of what Trini London has done for them okay what is the best piece of advice anyone's ever given you I've got two bits of advice one is a bit poignant because my father of my daughter said 99% of everything you worry about never happens, which is very true. And it's poignant because the one thing I worried about him happened. So that makes things, you know, you take, I still don't take away that statement he made. And the other bit, it's more advice I give other people, is that you never know what's behind the closed door. And I think in those times in early entrepreneurship, when you might have written 100 letters to potential VCs, nobody's got back to you. Your suppliers are saying, sorry, we won't give you terms. You're thinking, oh. But if you're, you don't know what is behind the closed door, you don't know where that next email is going to come from that's going to turn the business. And it's kind of keeping up that faith as you're like feeling you're drowning to remember, and it's the hardest thing to remember when you're right in that moment, but just to think, I don't know. So I think around investment, that's a big one. And, you know, when I went in and I was looking for investment and there were lots of people where I knew immediately they wouldn't invest, but there were one or two where I thought they would and then they didn't. And I was like, and that really knocks you. It's like a, you know, it knocks you for six. And then when I went to Unilever, I walked out and I knew they would. I just had this feeling. I just had this energy in the room and they got it. And I thought, yeah, they will. And I think it was a different feeling from that feeling I'd had before where I thought they person would and they didn't. And I then could only identify, identify that feeling afterwards and the difference in that feeling. Trini, it's been a massive pleasure having you on Secret Leaders. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. When I saw Amazon literally copied our product, it made me a little bit excited because I knew deep down it was going to fail and it was going to help prove how hard this space was. And many of the things that I guess I believe in building the company about authenticity and about building that relationship and especially things related to security, which have been so core to Whoop and I think so questionable for big tech companies. 
Next week, we've got Will Ahmed, the CEO and founder of the world's latest wearable unicorn, Whoop, which I'm not just a customer of, but a super fan. Having been wearing it for over two years, I was excited to geek out with Will on all things health tracking. Tune in or you'll miss out. If you're enjoying our show and you're happy to help us, please can you get out your phone right now and rate us on your favourite podcast player because that's the stuff that actually makes a difference. Thanks so much. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.